0: It's another edition of the Talking Mets Podcast here on this Thursday, January the 30th, 2020. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And you get the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. Whatever you're on, I appreciate you listening and encourage you to share it and bring it to others. And you can get me at... My email address, mike silva at com. if you want to interact and chat and what have you. Welcome in, everybody, and uh, obviously we're here on a Thursday, as I promised, a throwback Thursday edition of the Talking Mets Podcast. A weird week because, as I had mentioned on the last podcast when we broke down the craziness of the last couple of weeks and the Luis Rojas hire, and I know that... Uh, the Mets had their fan fest, which, by the way, I, you know, we're not going to really really get into that. It seemed like that went really, really, really well. So um, maybe we'll we'll try to get some more on that. And if you actually went to the fan fest and have feedback, send me a note at, at com. And we could chat about it. But as I promised, we're not going to be doing a show on the Super Bowl. And I'm bringing you a Throwback Thursday edition of the program. And in just a little bit, you'll hear a 2007 interview that I did on my early days over at 1240 a.m. WGBB with Daryl Strawberry. So stay tuned and uh, you'll get to hear that in just a little bit. But some stuff to unpack. Uh, First thing with the oddness of this week. With the death of uh, Kobe Bryant, which this is not a an NBA show, and I'm not going to sit here and, and go into details about that. You don't need me to lecture you or preach to you or make it about me, about that whole thing. But I thought it was appropriate to kick it off, especially with Daryl coming on. And uh, Daryl, when I interviewed him, was just really coming out of a lot of the issues that plagued him in his life. And it seems like he's th- turned things around. Um, so you know i'm not going to sit here and lecture you about that stuff but i always remember on a podcast called the corp and i think that that is somehow connected with barstool sports i'm not sure but on the corp kobe was interviewed about more less about his career more about business and his mindset i know everybody was talking about the mamba mindset and things like that but um he talked to Whoever was interviewing him, and I can't remember right now because I'm not—it's been a while. How well, that's a media question or a media type of way of looking at things. And I, and I always remember that. And I think one of the things that I admired as I got to learn more about Kobe. And I, as a Knicks fan, I'm not really invested in the Lakers. And I was never—and I still am not—one of those type of uh, fans back in the day that rooted for players. I root for teams and cities, and and things that have connections to me, not players. Players don't have, individual players don't have connections to me, but he always engrossed himself in something and tried to learn about it to an obsessive point to be as good as possible, and I think it made him a a more well-rounded individual. You saw as he got into his post-playing career, he was in business and production and and things like that, so I guess uh, sad times, uh, lessons to be learned for sure. I think you guys could all take... Those lessons uh, personally to yourself, and if you could ever go back and listen, if it's still available to the corp, and an interview with Kobe Bryant, I think it's interesting, and you could really get to learn a little about him. And uh, and, and to me, that would be the best way that I could share a, a memory or my thoughts on the situation, which has certainly been exhausted over the last few days. So a weird week, Super Bowl coming up. Like I said, no, uh, you know, Super Bowl show. We take off every year. We take off Super Bowl Sunday. Do you really want to talk baseball and Super Bowl Sunday? Well, maybe some of you guys do, but I know that you know there's a time and place for everything. But anyway, all right, so let's get to some of the things before I get to the interview because this will be a shorter show. This is a throwback Thursday edition of the Talking Mets podcast. So uh, Mets pass on Starling Marte. I, I don't think that's a surprise for anyone who's been following me on Twitter at Mike Silva Media. I've been telling you for a while from my understanding those talks were dead. I never felt comfortable with those talks. From day one, especially when Brandon Nimmo were in the talks, I have nothing against acquiring Starling Marte for the right price, if, and mainly if it was a salary dump for the Pirates, and the position that the Pirates are in, and I think their payroll now is down to about forty million bucks, which is pathetic. And I'm not criticizing them for rebuilding, but while you're rebuilding, you should at least try to put a competitive team. I think they're going to be going into becoming the Miami Marlins of uh 2020 but be that as it may starly Marte's 30 heading to the wrong side of 30 I know he got pinched for PEDs and and we've debated that and I don't get as crazy about that because there's a lot of things that you could be pinched for for enhancing performance that are in energy drinks and maybe take the wrong supplement you know we could debate that till you know the end of the day uh, but here's a guy that on average, plays about 125, 130 games a year. So he's not a guy that historically, forget the PEDs, that has stayed healthy. Uh, his defensive metrics are declining. They never were, and I'm always careful with defensive metrics because I don't know how easy it is to quantify uh, a lot of them. There's inconsistencies. There's no there's no pattern. Even with great defensive players, when you use UZR or UZR 150, you go to fan graphs and you try to look at players there's no consistency and even when uh, as you go more towards his gold glove years uh, you still have some negative UZRs so it, to me that shows at least there's some inconsistent consistency on the defense uh, coming from a team that was bad a bad clubhouse there was a lot t- talked about that is that the kind of guy and I don't know anything about him so I'm not saying he would have been bad on, in the Mets clubhouse the Mets have at least from last year, a very good clubhouse. Let's hope that continues. And maybe Marte coming into the Mets clubhouse would have been a positive. Uh, So I I can't say that, but that's always a a red flag for me when players, especially star players, uh, are in those very bad, poisonous clubhouses. But most importantly, why I was against the trade from day one. Not just because Brandon Nimmo was a name thrown about or Not for the fact that, and this is a big factor, if you're going to give up top two of your top five prospects, you've got to get a very high impact player at a position. Marte's not that. He's not that elite level. Maybe he has the potential, and I know he had uh, 2017, I believe, was a very elite year for him, but that's an outlier, in my opinion, as I look at, and age 30 is not a small sample size at this point. Uh, That's an outlier in a career, in my opinion. So, uh, you know, that's a separate thing. But, The fact that you have Nimmo, and I've talked about this, so I'm probably repeating myself to some of you out there. I've talked about this. Uh, Nimmo, if healthy, and if the herniations are not, the discs in his neck are not a long-term issue, that's the big, big, big concern I have going into 2020 with Brandon Nimmo. In 2018, when he played every day, he was sixth in baseball in run creation. Sixth. And in wind shares, he was between 25 and 30, depending if you go to fan or baseball reference. Look it up. Don't take my word for it. Look it up. It's there. Uh, and I know that's one year now. He goes into last year. He was hurt. That's a serious inju- injury he had. He tried to play through it early on. I have a feeling it wasn't just banging into the wall in Atlanta. There was probably something going on in there. Uh, so that wall may uh, have brought it out. But in September... Let's assume, you know, you have to assume he's healthy. He's back playing pretty much every day. In September, he was tw- top 20 in runs created in war when he played every day in all of baseball, not in the National League, not in just outfielders, all of baseball. That's in September of last year. So now you have a full year, you have a full year here that he's actually out there doing his thing. Uh, you have a uh, what he, healthy, you see what he can do. I've spoken to a scout who I trust and said he's not that bad in center field. He saw him last year, late in the year, when the, the Mets were on a road trip. He's not that bad. Uh, I mean, he's not elite. He's not gold glove. But he's but he's not somebody—I don't think you're talking about J.D. Davis in center field. Let's put it that way. So uh, that's the biggest reason I think you guys underrate Nemo who criticize him. I do not believe he's a fourth outfielder. I think he can be an elite— on-base guy, he has very sneaky power, he's got speed, he's got good energy, he's a good clubhouse guy. All those things, I think, all combined make for a guy that, if healthy, is a very, very good baseball player, uh, and maybe, as you peel the onion, you uh, you see an elite offensive run producer. So keep that in mind, and I think 2020 is going to be a big year for Brandon Nimmo, and he needs to prove that he can stay healthy, and he can re- basically repeat what uh, was a very promising 2018 that got uh, short-circuited last year because of a serious injury. Now, you may say, "Well, Mike, you know, here you are saying don't give up top two prospects for Marte." You know, all right, you you know, you don't believe Nemo's a fourth outfielder, but what why not give up the prospects? The Mets are in a win-now mode, push Nemo to the bench, make for a very deep and elite team, a lot of flexibility for Luis Rojas in the front office to figure out uh, those lineups. Well, First, the Mets are trying to, under the new regime with Brody Van Wagenen, rebuild the farm system to what they believe would be the next uh, phase of Mets development. I mean, they have their own philosophy and their own beliefs, and uh, Sandy Alderson did his thing, and there's been some successes. But in general, we all know, despite the Mets have having produced some very good, uh, some good offensive players in the system and some very good pitchers, uh, that the Mets have been lacking in, um, you know, component players and and re- in depth and things like that. So we'll see if if that comes to fruition. Now that's not uh, what the two top prospects are there for. You're going to say, well, here's and I could see it coming, and I've had it happen to me on Twitter. The Mets gave up Jared Kelnick for Edwin Diaz, and if you listen to what Andy Martino, who's very plugged in with the organization said, there's a couple of reasons why it's different now. First, the Mets were in a position trying to get a message out, not only to the fans, but to the organization, that we're aggressively trying to win. We're not in purgatory. And that's the collateral damage from all those years, 2011, 2012, all the way up to the World Series. And then the the fact that they really didn't aggressively, for a variety of reasons, capitalize on that pennant and try to push it to the next next level and then fell back, they needed to get some credibility out there. And I think that that's where the Cano-Diaz trade came into play. Diaz was the reason why they traded Kelnick. It was never Cano. We've talked about this. And I hate to get into Kelnick, but it's different. Diaz, at his position, is elite, where he could be the top player in that position, controllable. Even after him getting into arbitration, he's still very affordable. Uh, that deserves a top prospect. I'm sorry, especially in this day and age where bullpens are, where the difference between winning and losing happens. So you could debate, well, why did they make it Kelnick? Why didn't they make it Jimenez? Why didn't they make it somebody else? From what I understand, at that time, and I don't know if they would say the same thing now. I have no idea. They valued Jimenez, Andres Jimenez, a middle infielder who has potentially five tools, who had a rough 2019, so that compounded the Kelnick trade at times, had a rough 2019. I think he had some flashes. Uh, They valued him higher, and that was the difference where they they could have potentially done Jimenez, and maybe now we're all sitting there and we hear about Kelnick and we hear how close he is to the big leagues, and you hear he could play some center and do the Mets need a center fielder? Well, I'll tell you what. Knowing what I know about Brandon Nimmo, knowing what I know about Michael Conforto, uh, and knowing what I know uh, to date about J.D. Davis, I think if Kelnick can be any of those guys... That's a really good career. Uh, if he could be better, I mean, God bless. But um, you already have that. You don't need to really get that. Now, could you say, well, you could have gotten Kellnick for a better package and a different impact player? I understand that. But again, the fact remains that Edwin Diaz, at his position, a very important position, closing ball games, is elite top 1-2 in baseball and controllable and affordable. And that's why the situation with Starling Marte is different. Simple, plain and simple. So uh, there's that. Um, What else is going on here? DH. So I hear about uh, the debate on the DH, and and I was really happy to hear that baseball is starting to. And it looks like it will happen after the collective bargaining agreement, but there's some talk that as early as 2021 next year that we'll see the DH in the National League. And I've always been a proponent, for the DH in the National League. Now, I did not know, and I should probably look into this a little bit more, that there was a vote back in the early 80s, maybe 1980, 81, about bringing the DH to the National League after they saw what it did in the American League, and it was voted out or there was some kind of you know confusion over who was voting where. That's not what that's about. But I know there's a lot of purists out there, and I know there's a lot of people that say, well, I like the National League game. Look at the best pitchers. You know, you're know, you going to lose guys like Syndergaard and Degrom." who are not bad hitters, you know, lose the opportunity for them to hit a home run or show their stuff on the base paths, strategy with the bunting. I get all that. Um, But let's break this down really, really to the granular level with data. Let's just do that because that's going to give you, I believe, a totally different perspective on this. Last year, the Mets, by all accounts, by eye test, by even with the numbers, had a pretty good year offensively with their pitchers. Their pitchers hit about a buck 60, but they had six homers and 17 RBIs and 311 at-bats. They struck out by the way 44% of the time. That's high. That's if that was a player they'd be be sent back down to the minor leagues. If you took those 311 at-bats and parse that out over the course of a 9-inning game times how many games that leads to. That's 12 games of the season where pitchers hit exclusively. I'm doing Mets pitchers. Mets pitchers hit exclusively. 12 games. So you talk about games being boring, not enough offense, all the things a pace of play brings up. Well, 12 games of pitchers hitting, guys that are very good athletes, have hit at certain levels, but now as they get to the big leagues, their craft is pitching, and they got enough to worry about when it comes to pitching. Uh, they're automatic outs. Basically, 12 games a year, a homestand, a road trip, two weeks, almost two weeks worth of games. Pick any month of the year, two weeks worth of games, pitchers hit exclusively if you're a National League club. And I'm just using the Mets, their data, right? Compare that to DHs. You want to go to the Yankees, one of the better offensive teams. Their DHs had 41 home runs and 99 RBIs. Big difference. That's a, you know, maybe that's not, an, depending as you break it down, they were about league average when you come to uh, OPS plus the Yankees' DHs, but they have power and they could drive in runs. Okay, the Yankees are a great team. You want to argue with me about a bad offensive team? Take Detroit, one of the worst offensive teams, not just in the American League, all of baseball. Their DHs hit 16 home runs and 62 RBIs, had an OPS just under 700, but you get the point. That's a much more formidable point of the lineup than a pitcher. Give me two weeks of that. Games are a little bit more lively. Give me two weeks of Yankee DHs. Games are a lot more lively. You get the point. That's where this is going. You have to have a uniform situation. I know there's the other arguments about injuries and everything like that. And certainly I know that comes into play. Anybody who's a Yankees fan remembers Chiming Wong, who many believe his career was ruined by running on the base paths. And look, You don't have to use the DH. If you have a pitcher that likes to hit and you want to play around and give him an opportunity because you may not have a great DH or you may have a DH in a slump, you can let him hit. There's no reason. Look at the rules. You don't have to use the DH. The pitcher can hit. It's happened before. It's happened before, and it hasn't been uh, uh, too long ago. I think it was Rick Roden. Uh, was actually ADH in the 80s. He dh the game, I think, for the Yankees. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I'd have to look it up. I think there have been teams that had hit uh, pitchers that they said, hey, I-, I want that pitcher to hit. He's a pretty good pitcher. That might have been Roden, too. So uh, I think it's an easy debate. This has to happen. I believe it will happen. Uh, I was hoping it would happen as early as this year. For the Mets, it has huge impacts. And I think they need to start making some decisions in the league because teams have to play in next offseason. So you don't want to let a cesspit go if you know the DH is coming because you may want to sign him to one or two years because you want to have that DH option. and He'd be a great DH option if he could stay even just healthy offensively for the Mets going forward. So there's that last thing before we get to the throwback Thursday, I don't want to take too much time here, but there was some stuff going on. So the Mets announced their hall of fame selections for the Mets hall of fame. And on Twitter, I had stated that I was a little uncomfortable with the direction that the Mets Hall of Fame was going. So their announcement was that Ron Darling, Edgardo Alfonso, and John Matlock uh, had been elected into the Mets Hall of Fame. And all three of those guys uh, at some point were very important, had elite type of seasons in Mets history in some context. So none of them are bad Mets, and they all should be you know, remembered. For various different contributions And various different eras of fans But I said the only one that I thought At that time was worthy Of being in the Mets Hall of Fame Was Darling and that was because more Of his broadcasting playing combination Than it was anything else And I got some criticism and then I Thought about it and I stepped back and I said Okay the Hall of Fame which we just Went through that debate we just did that Show you have to look at A team Hall of Fame different and it's a little bit More holistic where Mm, let's see how things go. Let's let's look at a, a, a more moments and importance to the to the franchise versus just pure numbers. But if you just want to do it how we do and rank, or how at least I do the regular Hall of Fame. Well, listen, Edgardo Alfonso, who had a couple of really good years, got hurt and had his career short circuited. Uh, he's a top four windshare player in Mets history, and I was I guess I'm not surprised, but. Uh, it surprised me a little bit. It, it did. It surprised me a little bit, uh, that he was that high. I mean, he's higher than Jose Reyes. He's higher than Keith Hernandez. He's higher than Mike Piazza, Howard Johnson. Uh, and, and he, and he had a period from maybe ninety eight, ninety nine, 99 and 2000, were very elite 97 to 2000 were his, was his band there, where he was uh, a very good player, very, uh, high-level contributing player, but I think he took a next step in '99 and 2000, and then he had the back injury and he got hurt. But to me, his contribution to that pennant-winning team, the fact that
2: And he hit it. There it is. Base hit, left field. Here comes Heap around second. There will be no throw to the plate. And Strawberry has his first
1: Major League base hit. He'll always remember this one. Forming up their third pitcher. Well hit to left center field. Out of here, Daryl Strawberry's first Major League home run. Oh, Strawberry right. goes to the opposite power alley.
2: Strawberry is up facing Nipple. It is now a 4-1
1: ball game. Strawberry hits
2: it high in the air to right. Fast to the wall. It's gone. The score is tied. Evans back at the wall. Gone! There goes Strawberry. Breaking ball is high. The throw, not in time, and he's done it. Harold Strawberry, a member of the 30-30 club. Bottom
1: of the fifth inning.
2: Speaking of all, there's a long drive. That ball is out of here. Home run Darryl
1: Strawberry. I can't believe it. That ball hit the top of the stadium. One to tie here in the bottom of the 10th inning. And it's right in the deep right field. It's going, going, it's gone. Goodbye.
0: And the Mets win it on Strawberry's two-run home run in the 10th inning. Thanks for taking a few minutes, Daryl. Uh, were you enjoying the game?
3: Uh, yeah. So I'm actually leaving it right now, and uh, you know, I had um wanted to make sure that I took care of you guys because I promised to come on the air with you guys. I my word is my word.
0: Thank you, Daryl. Hey, Daryl, since it's Subway Series weekend, talk to us a little bit. How was it very different playing between uh, the, when you played for the Mets and played for the Yankees? Is there a big difference playing for the two teams?
3: Well, yeah, it's a big difference playing for the two teams. I mean, you look at the great tradition that the New York Yankees have. You know, all the legends and the great players that have ever put on a Yankee uniform. And, um, uh, you know, the Mets, you know, Mets was a team that's just really turning the corner again, you know, over the last couple of years with Willie Randolph coming over and, um, taking, taking the team and Omar Man- Maniac taking the team in different directions. So they headed in the right direction from the team of the eighties and, um, hopefully they can bring some history back to, uh, state stadium.
0: Hey, Dal, speaking of your Mets days, do you remember a lot about May 6th, 1983, your first pro game?
3: Yeah, I mean, well, I remember Mario Soto striking me out three times. <laughs> I wasn't too uh, I wasn't too excited about that, you know. But um, it was a learning experience getting to the big leagues, and you know, any player knows that you know coming here is going to be tough. And and the key is coming here and trying to stay here and, and accomplish a lot. So you you work for the long long haul of everything. and, And pretty much that's what I did, and it worked out well for me.
0: Now, you talk about adjustments. Now, let's say you started your career in, let's say, maybe Cincinnati. Would that have been a little easier, you think, for you, your first two or three years in the league?
3: Well, you know what, guys? I could say that, but my career was supposed to be in New York, and I was supposed to have the journey I had. And, you know, playing in New York was a great place. I love New York. I love New York fans. And when I left New York to go play in Los Angeles, the baseball wasn't the same. It was pretty boring because I was so accustomed to fans, you know, here – Different attitude, the standing ovation, the boring. i loved it, you know, because it made it made me play. I it never rattled me. It always made—they always brought the best out of me in New York.
0: Dale, you talk about that about going to LA, and I've read in, in the past that you said it was well, the biggest mistake of your career. Do you still think it was a, it, that big of a mistake going to the Dodgers that things turned out differently because of that?
3: Yeah, because I was so I was so used to people. Uh, I was so used to fans. Fans are different now anymore. They come come early. Leave uh, you know come early. I mean, they come to the game late and you know, leave early. You know, I was just fans like in New York. You know, they here, they are here to stay, and they're going to cheer you on to the end. So I was pretty much accustomed. I mean, playing eight years here at Shea Stadium, I was accustomed to that.
0: Now, when you left in 1990, was it more of the Mets maybe pushing you out the door, or was you you were just uh, sold on going to LA? What was the situation?
3: I wasn't. I wasn't truly sold on it. I mean, I think it was just the organization didn't you know didn't want to contract before a long term contract and. And they kind of forced me to play on my opposite hand. And, and I played that year out and, and went out in the bang. And I wanted, you know, I wanted to be back in, in New York. I didn't want to leave New York.
0: Now, when you came back on May 7th of 91, I remember, you, I think you hit a home run off of Frank Viola. Was it weird coming back that day
3: and playing now? Yeah, it was pretty weird coming back, you know, being on the opposite side. And, you know, used to, you know, used to the crowd and seeing the crowd and, and the people. Uh, you know, nothing, there's nothing like sports in New York, uh you know, it was born in my blood, and you know, to be here and to have the success here, it was kind of different for me coming back here to play.
0: You played for three legendary managers. You had Davey Johnson, Tom LaSorda, and Joe Torrey. Who was your favorite?
3: Oh, Davey Johnson and uh, Joe Torrey, and no question about it. Uh they, they 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 played the game. They understand the game, and they know how to manage the game. And you know, I was fortunate to be able to play with those uh, those two great managers. They were outstanding people, and I enjoyed playing with
0: them. You know, you and Davey always seem to be at odds. Is it a matter of just two strong personalities going at it, or was that just uh, inaccurate we were, reporting?
3: We were we not really at odds. You know, I love Davey, and Davey loved me. We were just, both of us real real hotheads. You know, we wanted to win. You know, that was our thing. You know, my thing was winning. And, you know, that's what he brought over here when he came as a manager and took over the team. He brought the winning tradition. And I came from, you know, high school and, and inter playing winning baseball, and I wanted to be successful at this level.
0: Now, after you played for the Dodgers and the Giants, you went to play a short time with the Independent League, uh, St. Paul Saints. Tell us a little. I mean, here's Daryl Strawberry, uh, the highest-played player in the game at some point, all-star for the Mets, playing in front of this big crowd that you talked about. Now you're playing in the Independent League. How did that go? Uh,
3: well, it was different. I mean, I had some flaws in my life, you know, and I, I, I don't blame anyone. I take full responsibility for them, and I had to work my way back to prove myself to you know, I could still play, and, you know, I, I finally got up and decided, you know, let me go give it a shot. And I went there, and when, when I went there and played, baseball was fun again. I had lost that drive of what fun it was in the game of baseball, and, I, and it came back, and, and I got, you know, I got myself back in great shape to play, and I went out and, and, and played some exciting baseball.
2: In
0: 96, you hit 417 in the ALCS, you win a World Series. How was that experience in comparison to 86? Was it sweeter, or how was it in, in, in comparison?
3: Well, the 86 ex- experience is just the most exciting one. Um, that was the most exciting one, you know, winning the first one. The first one, there's um, nothing like it. And, but to come back to New York and, and be a part of the Yankees and, and win the championship on that end, uh, I was I was so delighted. You know, playing with some great players, Bernie Williams, Jeter, you know, some like Tino, you know, O'Neill. you know, I got a chance to play with some great players, great group of guys, and, and we just had so much fun with those years with the Yankees.
0: 98 Yankees versus 86 Mets. Who do you think wins, Dal? If you could suit oh, up, no question, 86 Mets. Really? Man, 98 Yankees. We were a great team, but at 86 Mets.
3: We had an unbelievable pitching staff, and we had an unbelievable group of guys that played the game. I mean, extremely well, fundamentally sound, knew what it took uh, to win games. Uh, wasn't afraid to take chances, uh, and we we just went out
0: there and played the played the game in the way it's supposed to be played. So blue uh, blue and orange is in your blood, Darrell. No uh, Yankee pinstripes, right?
3: No, blue and orange. You know,
0: I'm a true match, You know, I
3: mean, I am always grateful for, the, you know, Mr. Steinberger, who gave me the opportunity to play with the Yankees. Um, I will always respect the boss because I love him. He's a good dear friend of mine, and he gave me the opportunity to become a Yankee and, and go over there and help that team win,
0: too. Hey, I want to talk about your foundation, but one last question. How was it? You looked like you were having a great time last year during that 86 celebration. And then before Game 2, you got another standing ovation when you threw out the first pitch in the NLCS. Just describe to us the love you felt from the fans, and was it kind of a came full course? Because you didn't feel that love when you went to the Dodgers, and then you kind of came back, like the prodigal son came home. Just tell us a little bit about that.
3: This is home. Uh, And, you know, I think fans really remember you know what it was like here in the 80s. And the kind of you know, group of guys we had and what we put on the field and what we brought to our fans. We brought National League baseball back to the town and we kind of owned this town for those, those years of the eighties. And, um, to, to be able to come back and, you know, have that celebration for that group, but our fans never forget. They, they crazy about that 86 team. Fans never forget it. That's all they talk about every time I come to New York, the 86 Mets. And, you know, it, it's just awesome, you know, to be able to have that opportunity to accomplish so many great things in such a wonderful city.
0: Hey, I went to uh, com and I saw that you had a quote, and your quote was that you retired the bat, you put away the spikes, but the purpose of your life is just beginning. It seems like you're you're putting everything that you put on the field into this off-the-field endeavor. Tell us a little bit about your uh, Daryl Strawberry Foundation. No
3: no question about it. My foundation is for uh, autistic children, um, and autistic children in St. Louis and all across the country. We have a foundation that we just built up, me and my wife, and, uh, we're so excited about it. We love the kids that are affected with autism. We love the children. They're very special and dear to us. Uh, actually, my sister, my wife's sister works there at um, one of the centers in St. Louis, and when we went to visit the center, we fell in love with it, and we developed a foundation uh, behind it to uh, be a big supporter of it, um, to do whatever we can to raise funds for them, to expand their facilities, and to help them educate the kids. So. You know, it's about giving back. You know, to whom much is given, much is required. You know, I've been blessed to have a great life. And I just think a lot is required out of me, guys. And, and for me to be involved with it, and uh, we're just excited about it. And we have our first golf outing in Lawrence, Long Island, on August the 6th um, here in New York uh, to raise money for uh, for the foundation and for the children.
0: Do you have any information? I know it's on com. Is there any specific information they need to know?
3: Um, no, it's, it's, it's all it talks about the foundation, and you can read our brochure and the information, and it's on the back, the PO box, and everything. You know, and if anybody wants to join on, join in with helping us with our autistic children, uh, feel free to you know send a check in and, and, and help support the cause.
1: Hey,
0: Daryl, I know you were at the game, and I appreciate you coming out early to the game and talking about your career and your foundation. And as a Mets fan who watched you growing up in the, the '80s, I'm really glad that you're doing well, and I'm really glad. Uh, and I hope that we could help, uh, you know, promote your foundation. And I thank you for coming on this uh, fairly new show.
3: All right, guys, you guys take care, and you guys have a good evening.
0: Thanks a lot, Darryl. That was Darryl Strawberry. Check out the Daryl Strawberry. Check out DarylStrawberry dot com, and check out his foundation. That was a great interview. Daryl always is a, a favorite of mine, and it's kind of weird here now, you know, twenty years later, being able to interview him on on the air. We like to look back at Mets history on the Talking Mets podcast. Like, why was Davy Johnson the perfect manager for the Mets during their 1980s renaissance? Eric Sherman, author of Davy Johnson's book, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond, tells us.
2: And then he um, went into the Mets organization and worked his way up. And, uh, really got to know the minor league system and what the Mets had very, very well. Um, you know, And he was managing Doc when he was just a kid, you know, like 17 years old. Uh, you know, he managed Dar- Darryl Strawberry, of course. I mean, Davey really knew what the heck the Mets had in that minor league system. Uh, Lenny Dykstra was another one. and Wally Backman, who wasn't the most talented second baseman, but he just loved the way that he played. So, really, he knew what they had. And so by the time he came up to manage in 84, he was the perfect pilot for that ball club. Um, and, uh, you know, he, he brought up Dwight Gooden a year before Frank, Frank Cashin wanted him up. And, you know, his relationship with Frank is a whole other thing, which he really gets into in the book. I mean, Mets fans will devour that, um, that very odd relationship he had with Frank. <laughs> Let's just say that for now.
0: Listen to this and more at www.talkimetspodcast.com. All right, we're back. Final thoughts, and I I really enjoyed that interview with Daryl Strawberry. I hope you did too. I uh, just think back how long it's been. It's been 13 years. I feel again like I told you on the the last one with Gary Carter. It was like yesterday, and and I'm going to do another Throwback Thursday interview. Uh, Hopefully when I I don't cringe because I heard my New York accent, which I know comes out every once in a while, and I go, oh, I could do better on that, And, and that's very early in the days, and I still do that now. And I have to work on that. Sometimes I say, "Ah, oh, the New York accent. I mean, if there was a, a radio producer or a, a department head, they'd be killing me on that if you were really on radio. So there'll be one more of those next week. I have so many of these uh, clips from the years. You may have heard some. Some of you may have followed me and heard it. There's probably many of you that have not. And I certainly uh, want to share what I can with you that's relevant and how we can do it in the flow of – the podcast, so there'll definitely be one more, maybe two. Uh, so check out next week the Throwback Thursday, and I'll let you know what that one is. I have an idea of what I want to do. I'm thinking about it, but I may change it. But sit tight, uh, definitely something that uh, you guys will uh, will enjoy. So there's that. No show Sunday, take off for the Super Bowl. Enjoy the Super Bowl. So that we know about that. We'll get back to the regular weekly podcasts after the Super Bowl. Spring training will start. Pitchers and catchers. There'll be plenty to talk about. I have a feeling it'll be. It has to be quieter with the Super Bowl, all the stuff that's gone on. You got to give us a break here before spring training, before the the real fun starts. I mean, how much more uh, fire can come out? How much more? Uh, I mean, it's good to have all this stuff to talk about, but geez, no, January. I mean, this is what what makes for good off season, but January usually is the dead month. So if this is any indication of how things are going to go, we're going to have a lot of fun times, a lot of stuff to talk about, and a lot of good podca- podcasting content. So uh, we'll we'll stay tuned for that. A couple of quick thank yous uh, for those who sent me some mailbag. And if I haven't gotten back to you, I plan on getting back to you shortly. John Little, uh, and I know John is an Android user, so uh, I appreciate you on Android listening to the program Pass it along to other Android users. I don't care if you use Apple. I know a lot of people use Apple, and that's the one that always pops up. But th- listen to this wherever you can. I mean, I know it's not just Spotify and Apple and Stitcher, but there's plenty of places that this podcast is on because I search and I see and I make sure that if there's a place that I'm not on, I try to get it on there and the feed on there. So thank you for that. Jared Weisel, I want to thank him for some great feedback uh, over at my mailbag. Philip Metz, Chris Kamage and our buddy Jeff Cohen who sent me some nice feedback on the Gary Carter interview so thank you for that and if I pronounced your name wrong send me a note Mike Silva at talkitspodcast.com and I will try to do a better job in the future I try my best I know I got like I botched Jared Cole's uh, uh, name a while back and I got killed for that rightfully so so I mean I think I do a pretty good job with it but at times look there's the accent there's reading stuff looking at the the monitor I don't have a producer it's an excuse, I know. No excuses. you got to do a good job trying to put a product out here. But um, with all the stuff going on, I I realize that there are gaps, but I hope you enjoy it. I hope you enjoy the podcast, and uh, I certainly enjoy doing this weekly. And, and, again, I thank you guys for tuning in. Of course, I know it's 13 years later. I want to thank Daryl Strawberry for joining us on the old 1240 AM WGBB show. You can check this show out all the time at talkametspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media, and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Android, whatever podcasting service you desire, send me a note at Mike Silva at com, and I'd love to hear from you. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another Talking Mets Podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody.